Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lines Led by Donkeys podcast, but uh, I guess you probably already knew that. If you like what we do here on the show, consider supporting us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash donkeys. Just $5 per month gets you every regular episode early, access to our community Discord, a digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, as well as its audiobook, read by me, and over five years of bonus content. By supporting the show, you support us and allow us to keep our show as it has always been ad-free. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me today in the content caves, apparently as cold as I currently am, uh, because he's wearing a hoodie with the head up while we're recording, is Tom. Sup, buddy? I like that you say as cold as you are, as if you're not in a t-shirt that says caffeine in kilos. Look, just because I'm cold doesn't mean I'm going to put a sweater on inside. I don't know why that is. I blame the fact that I am from Michigan, that like, if I was... Like if we were inside, uh, you were in like you were not wearing layers. Maybe that's my family. I don't know. I haven't spoken to fellow Michiganders in quite some time, but I only put another layer on, like a sweater, a hoodie, whatever. If I step outside, because it's like outdoor clothes, my brain tells me it's like wearing shoes indoors. Okay, I I agree with that. Also, I was gonna say I thought you know you're wearing some Sinaloa cartel merch, but uh. Yeah, no, shoes inside. That's that's freak shit. That's freak behavior. Yeah, it it it's like it's also I've learned it's very cultural. Like some people have like indoor slippers or shoes, which is fine. I'm a barefoot inside guy. Same. Um, which gotta let the dogs breathe. Yeah, man. Shit, like I'm my feet are not wrapped unless I'm walking out the door. Speaking of which, um, also like sometimes you drop something on the floor and you need to pick it up, but you don't want to bend over, and you can pick it up with your toes. Okay, I don't do that. Um, my toes are not that nimble. I can't feel the bottom of my feet due to previously having immersion foot, sometimes known as trench foot. Um, <laughs> um, so for people who are unaware, uh, and they, maybe Tom is editing this so I don't sound as sick as I am. I had to go to a pharmacy today uh, in The Hague in the Netherlands. Um, and Dutch folks, I don't know if this is... A normal thing. Maybe this guy is intensely weird, but he was standing there. Mind you, it it is not warm here. Um, I came from Armenia where it is still like 30 to 40 degrees. So like it's been a bit of a, a climate shock and I'm waiting in line in the pharmacy and the guy in front of me who is Dutch, he's speaking Dutch, um, is barefoot. Do- but he's bald? I've heard that's normal in like Australia, New Zealand and shit, but like... Look, the roads are super clean here, so like I wouldn't be worried about stepping on anything, but like it is not warm and this guy is full dogs out barefoot in the pharmacy and nobody there has a problem with it. So he's not like he's not wearing like flip-flops. He's just no. like pitter-pattering around, to- pitter-pattering around in his bare feet. That is nonce behavior. I'm sorry. That like like bare we should put people who are pro barefoot, you know, like barefoot is natural into some form of camp doing the that weird grounding thing that hippies do but you're just standing in the middle of centrum and den Haag. like i'm i'm absorbing the earth's energy on this sidewalk <laughs> like I, I i very much feel like that guy has a thc blood concentration that could kill a normal human i mean i am in the netherlands i have not smelled this much weed since i've been back in detroit 
How can you not be freezing fucking cold walking around on concrete? Which I don't know. Why? I don't know. It was baffling to me. I was. It wasn't the cold so much as like that's gross. Like maybe maybe yeah. I I am too much of an uptight shoe elitist, and I enjoy being barefoot. But you're not gonna even in when I was living in Hawaii where. Nobody wears closed-toed shoes unless you're going to the gym or a funeral. Like, you're not going to catch me. Yeah, pitter- wear a sandal. Yeah, you're, you're not going to catch me pitter-pattering around on shop floors with my bare feet. For one, my feet are ugly. I have treated them badly throughout my life. I'm keeping the motherfuckers hidden. And this guy, same. I, w- I will say, uh, like his, like on rate my feet, he'd be a three out of ten. But uh, I'm. I'm- this is just further justifying our hatred of the Dutch on this show. Like, I have to retract a lot of that these days if I want my visa to be approved. <laughs> <laughs> I have spent so long going through every episode and cutting out defamatory statements about the Dutch so the Dutch CIA doesn't come after Joe. That's fine. That's good. Um, I mean, the Dutch CIA is just the CIA. <laughs> pretty much. Tom, <laughs> I have gathered you here today because we have talked about Irish history on this show. A few times, every time you're hosting, um, other than before you joined the show, of course. So today we're going to flip it and we're going to talk about Irish history in the United States. And I'm going to tell you about the Fenian raids. I'm assuming you are somewhat familiar with the time a bunch of Irish Americans invaded Canada. Vaguely. I'm just more familiar with the, uh, the efforts of people like Wolf Tone uh, in fundraising in the U.S. Uh, among Irish Americans—that is how like it all started. Gonna- yeah, like the Finians started as a branch of the IRA or the the Irish Brotherhood to raise funds for the struggle in Ireland, and then the Civil War happened and things spiraled wildly out of control. Um, and before you know it, a whole bunch of very confused Irishmen were. <laughs> Storming the beaches of upstate New York. <laughs> I feel like there's great adaptation potential for this for, you know, Matt, Mark Wahlberg, Matt Damon, you know. You know, look, if Mark Wahlberg was there, the second plane would not, in fact, have hit New York City. Um, <laughs> look, uh, all I'm saying is Mark Wahlberg gets a pass on a lot of things, and he shouldn't because he's a racist hate criminal. Moving on. Yeah, the man literally <laughs> blinded uh, someone in a hate crime, and everyone's kind of forgotten about it. And he asked, he, went, he asked for his charge to be expunged afterwards because of all of the work that he did. I'm like, what work, Mark? The happening or whatever, like the movies. That's yeah, like, like being a B-rate action star is not a form of community service. <laughs> but it's like, did you see that video the other uh, recently? That was like, oh, it was a guy who survived either Hiroshima or Nagasaki on American television, and the hosts brought out the guy who flew the Enola Gay. Oh. You mean the guy who survived both Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Yeah, the yeah. only guy on Earth that when he saw a bright flash, he's like, fuck, I know what that is. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was incredibly fucked up. Now, we do have to talk about something. Maybe you do know a little bit more than me before we get to that point. Why so many Irish immigrants, as much as 150,000, ended up fighting in the U.S. Civil War on both sides? Uh, so partially it was because 
uh, immigration to the US was so popular and at the time yeah, we're going to talk about um, why exactly that happened um, <laughs> there's this thing called colonialism yeah um, uh, uh, and a lot of people were recruited through like pamphleting um, pamphlets and stuff that were sent to Ireland that were you know recruiting for like people to build railways people for infrastructure projects but also to join the military and as we've talked about on the show um at this time armies had a great habit of you know uh not conscripting but um enlisting people who didn't speak the same language exactly yeah we're gonna, a lot of irish immigrants were effectively shanghaied into the union army but Irish immigration to the United, what is today the United States, is actually older than the United States itself. The first significant influx of Irish immigrants to Boston and New England, shocker, I know, consisted primarily of Ulster Presbyterians and began the early 18th century, between 1700 and 1775. Already around 200,000 of them would show up on the shores of colonial America, which is a massive portion of the colonial population, I should say. Um, we we've talked a little bit about uh, colonial population back then during our uh, during a, a different series, and like that is a massive percentage of the colonial American population. I mean, like, look, you know, if you're a Protestant in Ireland at this time and you uh, aren't getting enough joys about you know displacing uh, Irish Catholics, what are you going to do? Why don't you go slaughter some Native Americans? Pretty much, actually, that's exactly why. Um, now. <laughs> we we talked about what was going on in Northern Ireland during this time back in our series in the Troubles, so I'm not going to rehash that too much. And they these Presbyterians would eventually be joined by the first wave of Irish Catholics who were fleeing discriminatory English penal laws. Though there was an encouragement to get these Protestants to come to the United States or the colonies at the time. In 1718, Massachusetts Governor Samuel Schutt agreed to allocate free land to Ulster settlers. His goals had nothing to do with liking the Irish, of course, this is early American <laughs> history, but rather because an uptake in his population would help his territorial claims to Maine, as well as act as a bulwark against Native Americans who were, of course not super happy with their current lot life with their new shitty neighbors. So he would take all of these Irish immigrants, give them land that regular American colonists didn't want, and they'd effectively act as a buffer between them and the natives and, you know, do the things that settlers do, namely kill the natives. It's the weirdest episode of Deadliest Warrior before TV. We have 200,000 mix versus an entire continent of Native Americans. Look, if that show didn't get canceled, we probably would have got that because we did get the IRA versus the Taliban at one point. Yeah. Um, their numbers... Can uh, fun, fa fun fact about that. So, like, um, obviously, um, the Mujahideen were trained by the American state apparatus and, in part, some... Uh, people who had served in a certain part of Ireland and when they were teaching the Mahajadeen to make improvised explosive devices they essentially just showed them how the IRA made them because they were so complex and so well made that they were like yeah no the Russians will just not be able to disarm these at all. Yeah I mean it makes a lot of sense I mean when you think about what we know today as like urban irregular warfare with like improvised explosive devices a lot of what we know both from planting them and countering them comes from the troubles so it doesn't surprise me 
at all. I mean, some of the original, because I joined the army back in 2005, and a lot of the original things that we were being taught about improvised explosive devices like came from the British military, like which is wild when you think of how far in the past that actually was. And then it makes you think like, wow, we didn't. We didn't think about this all at all until we started a couple wars, huh? Because we're using this <laughs> shit from the eighties. Um, now, uh, so the Irish numbers continue to swell as they played a massive part in early American life and even the Revolution. For example, six people that signed the Declaration of Independence were born in Ireland, though only one was Catholic because they probably followed the same quota currently held by the Police Service of Northern Ireland. <laughs> I have to say I'm proud of that one. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as you can imagine, with me calling the majority of these guys Ulster settlers, they were largely English loyalists. So after the American Revolution, the immigration numbers of these Ulster folks began to slow down. However, as we talked about in our Trouble series, things were not getting better in Ireland. They were getting remarkably worse in the 1800s. Discriminatory laws, landlords, and of course, the Great Hunger drove thousands to begin fleeing in the 1840s. Though inside this story is actually a much more nefarious one. This like m- massive uh, refugee crisis was actually sponsored by the local English lords and like functionaries within Ireland. They're like, yeah, sure, you want to leave Ireland. Here's a ticket. You don't have to pay for it. Get on this boat. Because this benefited them. They wanted to clear the Irish from, the, specifically Irish Catholics, from the land. And so they're like, get on a boat. Go to fucking America. Please, for the love of God. And a lot of these boats were little more than floating death traps. These ships earned the nicknames coffin ships and killed at least 20,000 Irish during their journey from Ireland to mostly New York, New England area either from disease, starvation, or because they were put on ships that were purposefully rickety as shit and simply sank before they ever got to North America. And the, like, the thing with coffin ships is that like, it, retrospectively, when you look at those figures in terms of mortality, it, like, there is some arguing to be done about like, how many people you know, died of disease, how many people you know, died of starvation, or various other means. Um, but like the really interesting thing about this is the informal kind of information network that formed around these ships that were going to the US and like kind of continued well into the 20th century is because because obviously you couldn't like send a text to someone and say like oh when you go here go to this place they'll get you a job but quite often what historians have found is that on tickets you know written on the back of them like a lot of people got their tickets bought for them by family members who were already in the US or had been sponsored by local people, you know, a family would club together to send someone to the US so they could then send money back in a gradual process of people moving over. But what happened was this informal network developed of, okay, you were given kind of information, go here, go to this pub or go to this, you know, this place in the docks, they'll help you find a job, somewhere to live. And like, pretty much what happened was that information kept flowing backwards back to Ireland. So you had that's how you had like large Irish communities start to form in places like the Bowery in New York, in, you know, Boston, because they were, you know, reaching the east coast of America 
getting off being told to go to one place or another and then that person would then give them more information kind of like you know various levels of a of a side quest in skyrim now by the time of the u.s civil war hundreds of thousands of more irish had made their home in the united states with the majority of them being in new york and boston to the surprise of nobody to the point that one irish immigrant joked New York is a grand, handsome city, but you would hardly know you had left Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's kind of like being in London now. Yeah. And whoo boy, did the Americans fucking hate the Irish. Now, we've we've often joked that this is the era where Americans, like what was considered American then, was so intensely racist, they also hated white Europeans, which is true to some extent. But the Irish that showed up in the United States are not, how do I say this without sounding really badly, are not what you think of when you think of Irish today. Um, Now, at the time, uh, well, at the time, America had really no Catholic population. Uh, Catholicism was seen as a very, very foreign religion. And remember, this is the 1800s. The vast majority of the people moving to the United States from Ireland spoke Irish. They didn't speak English. So like you have this group of people who look nominally white, practicing an intensely foreign religion to them and speaking a language that Americans have never even conceptualized before. So they did the thing that any group of people do and immediately start hating this new outsider (laughs) vehemently. But so like a big part of this is one, the large majority of the settlers in the U S around this time are coming from England, the Netherlands, Germany. So in general, it is like kind of white, somewhat Anglo Protestants that are landing in the U S At the same time, you have agitation for home rule in Ireland, which gave birth to the very common phrase of home rule is Rome rule. You know, so like if we give if we give, you know, the Irish the right to rule themselves, they'll just listen to the Pope. And I mean, that's Um, something that the US kind of shares with um, the English in that aspect is like even up until like the time of JFK being elected president, who was Catholic, there was a lot of pretty open conspiracy theories. Like, Oh, if we elect a Catholic, the Pope's actually the one in charge. And you even got (laughs) it a little bit when Biden was elected again, you know, decades and decades later, when you think that like people would be past that insane shit. So like Americans, I mean, maybe it's because, uh, you know, being founded on like intense Calvinism and mostly Protestants and things like that are still kind of innately suspicious of Catholicism, which as an American is is very strange to me. Like my mom is Catholic, um, not practicing like any good Catholic, you know, um, but it. Yeah, that's they saw it was one of those things. And a lot of that is could be immediately transposed onto Italian immigrants, which the US would be also intensely racist towards. So like anyone who wasn't from like an immediate peer culture to some extent, like the Germans, the Dutch, the the British, like were immediately looked at like subhuman. Uh, and this wasn't helped by the fact that they're greeted by something called the Know Nothing Party, um, which is this little footnote in American history that is is kind of the gene seed, if you will, of violent anti-immigrant great replacement shit. And they kind of tried to do that, like the great replacement theory, which I do not invite you to Google. Um, it's bullshit and, and insanely racist and neo-Nazi shit. Um, but, but they did it with the Irish. <laughs> <laughs> this is like I saw the other day, like some freak 
works for a think tank which is called the Pale Horse Research Institute. Suspicious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, so you had the intensely kind of like anti-Catholic and particularly because like so much capital in the US prior to the Civil War was uh, dependent on connections to Great Britain. Obviously, very we we spent four episodes talking about it um, earlier on in the year. So you had that rela- that old world rivalry holding over against the Irish when they arrived in the US. Um, also as well, like the like when you look at the formation of the US, so much of it is, like you said, hinged on like insane Calvinist, Presbyterian, Anglican, like Protestants mm. arriving and saying like, well, you know, Europe has gone to um, satanic for us. So, you know, we got we got to go be pure on a different continent. Yeah. And like the know nothings did a lot of the same stuff that's happening today. Um, like, you know, generally speaking, if somebody starts worrying about like birth rates, it's to be suspicious. Uh, and surprise, surprise, facing racist pressure and not even being allowed to assimilate, the Irish formed their own communities, largely centered around the Catholic Church. However, while many Irish immigrants were fleeing a genocide, others were fleeing the chains of English prison systems after the collapse of the 1848 Young Islander Rebellion. Probably our most important character of the episode that came out of this is John O'Mahony. <laughs> <laughs> O'Mahony, say it right, Joe. I did. I did my best. I didn't say O'Mahony. You did your best. Yeah, true. You did your best. Um, now, in 1855, he, along with Thomas Kelly, Michael Cochran, and a few others, formed what would become known as the Finian Brotherhood, a revolutionary Republican group that was closely connected with the Irish Republican Brotherhood back in Ireland. Now, the Finians—they're called—they're—they're they're called the Fenians. There's an E there, Joe. That's what I said. I said it perfectly. <laughs> this isn't Phineas and Ferb. That would be cool, though. Phineans and Ferb. <laughs> no. The Fenians' original goal was to simply raise money and get weapons for their comrades back in Ireland. Because, you know, despite the U.S. of war not quite happening yet, guns are produced that are very freely available in the United States and very easily shipped back to Ireland. Then the U.S. of war blew the fuck up. Now, by the time the U.S. Civil War kicked off, many Irish were now subject to conscription, as they had automatically became naturalized American citizens by being a resident within five years, a fact that many Irish simply did not know until they got drafted. Because to be fair, it had never happened before. Many of them had no idea they were even American citizens. It's not like they're like a dra- like a, a member from the INS showed up at the door like, here's your passport, Seamus. Like <laughs> I, I can't wait for like the absolute apocryphal like Irish guy ends up with Native Americans dances with wolves movie. That's eventually gonna happen once someone digs it once we run out of, you know. Uh, enthusiasm for big World War II movies, and it becomes culturally appropriate enough for like to have an Irish. Well, I suppose is Scorsese is kind of doing that with Killing of the Flower Moon or Killing of the Flower Moon. So you know, we, we we'll see it soon. Well, we'll get to how that probably seems unlikely in a little bit. Now, does it does it involve scalps? Oh, it involves a lot of Irish racism. Um, let's just consider it them trying to fit in. 
Okay, yeah. Once again, if you want more info on this, read how the Irish became white. Yeah. Um, now, this draft was a product of what was called the Enrollment Act of 1863, which required all single men between the ages of 20 and 45, as well as married men to the ages of 35, to register for conscription. Now, this created a moment of unity between what were considered white Americans and Irish Americans, who they previously saw as subhuman. One of those unifying factors was racism. Um, now, the, the Conscription Act really only targeted the working class because you could pay a fee of $300 and get out of it. So that meant a lot of normal working class dudes had no way out. And this unifying factor was, you know, white Americans are poor working class, Irish Americans are poor working class, and that meant they couldn't pay their way out of the draft. And so hmm, U.S. military recruitment tar- uh, exploiting working class people things uh, so, that uh, sounds familiar. Don't worry about recruitment. You don't have a choice in the matter. <laughs> <laughs> no benefits. Just fuck you. Get in a blue uniform. Now, Irish and white Americans. I'm using those terms to dif- differentiate the two, of course. Thought that if they allowed themselves to be drafted, if they submitted to conscription, their jobs would be taken by freed black men in the north. So some places. And of course, the North had also been an escape point for runaway slaves from the South. There was freed black people in the North already who were lower on the totem pole than they were. And they believe, and of course, they were not subject to conscription. So, like, they believe, like, if we submit to conscription, all these black guys are going to take our jobs. This led to. Shout a- out to Harriet Tobman. This led to a horrifically violent draft riot that were really more like race race riots as white Americans and Irish Americans burned down huge parts of New York and lynched black men on the streets. This was only stopped when units of the Union Army, fresh from fighting at the Battle of Gettysburg, were sent to the city and put it down. Yeah, this is going. This is going to be the start in a long line of uh, Irish Americans being super fucking racist. Yeah, unfortunately. Now, not every Irishman did this, and not every Irishman is drafted. Of course, thousands enlisted as soon as the conflict started, seeing a steady government salary as well as a way to you know prove to their fellow racist Americans that like, hey, I'm American too by serving in uniform. Now, this is. Not new to the Irish, virtually every minority in the United States has tried to do this, and it's failed every single time. Um, yeah, the Irish people were the only ones that really loved that blue uniform. <laughs> in fact, the first two recorded Union deaths of the Civil War were born in Ireland, though I should point out that they were killed in something of a comical accident when a cannon was overloaded and exploded when they happened to be standing next to it during a 100-gun salute at Fort Sumter. Whoops. <laughs> Never forget. So so many Irish volunteered to fight in the war that they formed their own regiments. However, one of them, the 69th, nice, New York State Volunteers may have just been the most Irish unit of them all. The entire backbone of the unit started from members of the 1848 Rebellion in order to encourage Irishmen to enlist. Furthermore, virtually all of their senior officers were Irish and members of the Fenian Brotherhood, including their commander, Michael Cochran. This was despite the fact he had temporarily been fired from that job because when the Prince of Wales visited the U.S., he refused to lead his regiment on the parade field. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this unit fought at virtually every major battle of the U.S. Civil War. 
all while carrying the regimental standard. Do you want to guess what it was? Oh, was it a green flag with a yellow plow on it? It was a green flag overlaid with a golden harp. Yeah. <laughs> See, but the, 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 so the old Irish flag is a blue flag with a yellow harp on it. It's the flag of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Um, obviously, you know, not allowed to fly that anymore. Um, <laughs> For reasons. Um, Mostly Simtex-related yeah. reasons. <laughs> Where does Gaddafi come into this story? Now, they were by far not the only Irish regiment, and definitely not the only one to be all but completely controlled by the Fenians. By the end of the war, 12 Irishmen were generals in the Union military. Every single one of them were a member of the Fenian Brotherhood. However, oh. they were not the only Irishmen to fight in the war because the majority of the Irish immigrants landed the North. Far more Irishmen fought for the Union than the Confederacy, but fought for the mm. Confederacy they did. The Confederates did the same thing that the Union had done. They centered Irish units around Irish battle standards, Irish officers to en- encourage more of them to enlist. However... The vast majority of Irishmen who fought for the Confederacy had done so voluntarily coming from the North. Come on, lads. The Irish did not want to see the emancipation of the slaves for the same reason that we already talked about. They figured Americans look at us like we're barely one step above black people. If all the black people get free, they're going to steal our jobs. Um, It's it's so funny because like... Because, like, Frederick Douglass came to Ireland and, like, toured around it and, like, he, like, he was kind of, you know, explained that, like, over here, like, I'm the same as you, like, in the US, like, it's so weird seeing all this this stuff. This is not an opinion that was shared by the Irish Republican Brotherhood back in Ireland. Like, they were, like, they were ashamed of what the Fenians were doing in the United States. And that that will come up later. For instance, mm, the beginning of a schism between the beliefs of Irish Americans and actual Irish people. Yep. Now, this might actually this might be a bit apocryphal. However, it's largely believed that the famous rebel yell of the Confederates came from an Irish unit fighting under the command of Stonewall Jackson during the first Battle of Bull Run. Which which to me says it should have been like, "Oh, you fucking cunt" <laughs> or something. <laughs> Now, the U.S. Civil War acted as something as a proving ground for these Irishmen, with the Fenian contingent, many of whom had become generals, becoming well-drilled in the art of war. O'Mahony believed that this like sudden glut of Irish combat veterans should immediately return home, and they would be the the backbone of a new Irish like rebellion, and because. There was more Irish combat veterans from the Civil War than the entire English army. Yeah, like it's it's really interesting that like so like Frederick Daniel O'Connell, aka the Great Liberator, um, uh, a kind of hero of Irish history about you know fighting for Irish independence, Home Rule, like um, like he was you know a letter writer to Frederick Douglass and like brought him to Limerick and like. He was called like the Black Daniel O'Connell, um, and like in January eighteen forty six, he described the oppression of Irish people. Like this is like way before what we're talking about. It's like he described the oppression of the Irish as the same degradation as the American slave, and like 
he said the suffering of one is the suffering of all and he caught he said that like there was a common cause of humanity between both struggles and i was i'm just like why why i I genuinely america pilled they got burger pilled i have a theory about irish people that like when we cross that threshold of either the Atlantic or the Irish Sea, there is like a 50-50 chance that they are going to become the most insane people ever. I feel like it's a lot of the diaspora of everywhere, honestly. Yeah. Now, this bred a schism between the Fenians and the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and honestly, even like multiple different sides of the Fenians themselves. Part of them, led by uh, O'Mahony and another man named William Roberts, uh, like Omahani's like, we need to go home, bring our muskets, and free uh, the, mm-hmm. the Irish state. Roberts is like, I got a better idea. Let's fucking invade Canada. <laughs> let's uh, let's start a new Ireland. Let's start Ireland. I mean, but to be with fair, snow. I mean, like to be fair, Irish men and women between the ages of like eighteen to thirty-five are currently trying to do that with Vancouver. So. <laughs> Now, as crazy as this sounds, and it, it is, uh, their idea was to seize territory in Canada, which is, of course, a British territory at the time, and ransom it back to England in exchange for a free Ireland, or failing that, force them to divert military resources to deal with them and open a pathway for another, hopefully more successful, Irish rebellion in Ireland. Or create such tension between the United States and England, because obviously the Fenian invasion is going to be launched from the United States. How that occurs is we'll talk about in a second would lead to a war between them because American like opinion of England after the civil war was effectively an all time low. The English had all but (laughs) officially helped the Confederacy. Um, And like they had built ships for them. Um, They were, there was like English, advisors, witnesses, whatever you want to call them with the Confederate military, not a great relationship between the two at the time. So after a few conventions, the pro-invade Canada faction of the Fenians took over, but they were still kind of powerless to do anything. The Brits were also acting. Now, small problem here. At no point were the Fenians' plans to invade Canada kept secret from fucking anybody. The oh, oh, this is just Pete Ellis all over again. It's just a drunk guy telling all his plans in a pub. Kind of. So the English did what they did best, crush the Irish. They suspended habeas corpus within Ireland, so they had legal cover to target anyone that could be considered a rebel. They began rounding up anybody with a Fenian or nationalist affiliation within Ireland itself. However, they fucked up. Around 100 of those people they arrested happened to be American citizens of Irish descent. And now, this was the unifying moment for real of Americans and Irish Americans, because with opinion already at an all-time low between Americans and the British, they saw them effectively arrest an American citizen for no reason. Now, Americans also had a very short memory because habeas corpus was also suspended in the U.S. not that long before during the Civil War, but whatever. Um, Now, this not only enraged the American government, but the American public, who finally, with geopolitics at play and years of the Civil War in their very, very immediate past, decided to see the Irish as not only people for the first time, but fellow Americans being crushed by the British crown. Uh, 
I don't like this. Now, this turn of American public opinion and government opinion against the British saw the Fenians unite behind their Invade Canada guys. So like, this might actually fucking work. <laughs> they purchased massive quantities of weapons and short of funds, they issued their own bonds to fundraise the invasion. And I, I already said this wasn't a secret. So just for an example of how in the open this was, the bonds were in the name of the Irish Republic and written on them was a promise to be able to cash them within six months of the recognition of the new Irish Republic by the US government. They hung recruitment <laughs> posters up on the street looking for Irish Civil War veterans, and they openly discussed it in American news. Newspapers. <laughs> they post eight and that check. It's like, eh, don't cash that too soon. Yeah, like don't don't cash it for about six months, and then you only can do it at like the Dublin Central Bank. You can't do it here. <laughs> now, at this point in the planning stage, as you could probably imagine at this point, everything was known about the US government, but they did absolutely nothing to stop them. And it actually goes deeper than that. There is a chance, a decently high one, that the US government actively helped the Fenians. Firstly, most of their weapons have been purchased from the U.S. military, though that could be very easily explained by like low-level quartermaster-based corruption. However, secondly, the Fenians elected a secretary of war, a guy named T.W. Sweeney, to plan this entire thing. T.W. Sweeney was an active-duty U.S. military officer at the time and was given leave specifically so he could plan the invasion of Canada. Also, you know, Thomas William Sweeney, like, served in the Mexican-American War, the Yuma War, yeah. as well as the Civil War. Yeah. Furthermore, the U.S. was fully appraised of the coming raids due to the fact that Bernard Doran Killian, the Finian Secretary of the Treasury, actually met with the President of the United States, Andrew Jackson, and the U.S. Secretary of State, William Seward. Oh, it's not a good time when you're meeting with Andrew Jackson. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, if there's one group of people that, that, that Jackson would be fond of shooting that are white, it would be the British. <laughs> um, now, but still, like, ugh, now, it's fiery where that man is right now. Reportedly, the two American leaders were very openly supportive of the operation, but stopped just short of openly backing them. However, it was clear that the government would do nothing to stop them, which is somehow more important. Like these people are mm. organizing in public, stockpiling arms. They're, the military is literally giving a colonel leave. Like, hey, I need to submit my leave form. Like, this is like me in the army. You're like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm going to go home and visit my family for Christmas, whatever. T.W. Sweeney is like, oh, I'm going to invade Canada. And the U.S. military is like, yeah, sure, man. I'll see you in a couple months. I mean, like, what? They're going to go fight some British and French people? Yeah, they don't like, give a shit. Go, go on. This only benefits the U.S. I also believe the U.S. didn't think that they were going to go through with it. Like, that, that's, my, that's my personal opinion, is that this was pissing off the British just in its conceptual stage. It still, it mm. still benefited the United States to be like, yeah, do your thing, whatever. But it's going to get real very shortly. And, th and that is when you're going to see the U.S. kind of be like, what the fuck? They actually did it. This is the, it's the tripart war between French fries, chips, and freedom fries. <laughs> so, with possibly thousands of people lining up for an invasion, because remember, there's no shortage of Irish Civil War veterans. Most of them hold some kind of Fenian sympathies at worst. At best, they're active participants, right? So, they are stockpiling weapons. They have seeming support of the United States. 
the invasion of Canada is set to begin on March 17th, 1866, and is to be led by John O'Neill, a former Union general. Then O'Neill's invasion had to be called off because only like 12 guys showed up. <laughs> hey, this is just like the 1798 rebellion. What, what can I say? However, nobody uh, decided to like telegraph ahead or send a send a, a runner or whatever to Irish Fenians in Canada in Waterloo, Quebec. Uh, so about six dudes were like, "Yeah, the invasion's coming, bro. Let's fucking go." They grab their muskets and they go out to where they're supposed to meet. And that's when, because at this point, the British know they're coming. Like, oh man, like these guys are openly talking about they're going to invade. So the the British military in Canada, as well as like Canadian militias and whatever, are already alerted to everything. Mm -hmm. So uh, outside of Waterloo, Quebec, uh, British military unit gets an alert like, uh, there's like four to six very confused Irish dudes with guns wandering around the woods. (laughs) Uh, So like... The Brits send out some guys on horseback and immediately arrest them without incident. Now, and then we get the second attempt, starting in Dedham, Massachusetts. Around 50 people began to march north, but the further they went, I guess more people kind of decided, like, kind of want to just go home, you know, go to the pub or whatever. (laughs) So, like, dudes started to desert, and then they went home. Eventually, a few of them were picked up by local cops for walking around armed and carrying battle flags and were arrested. So then they had to write home to their friends and family asking for bail money. (laughs) Now, in May, O'Neill tried again and did better, organizing around 700 men in New York on the American side of the Niagara River. His army was made up of Fenians from around the U.S. and were decked out in both Union and Confederate uniforms. You know, representation is important, you know? Are are you mixing like top and bottom or is it like they they, like split the uniforms down the middle and sewed them together? I like to think both, you know? Or are they like reversible? So like if you see someone coming down the road, it's like, oh, oh no, it's a confederate. I better change my uniform. Just imagine how weird it would be. You're a civilian in upstate New York after the Civil War is over and you see like a a grip of Irish dudes walking by in confederate gray. Like, what the fuck is going on? Is the first ever, you know, like Irish stag do. There's a lot of drunk Irish guys wandering around. It's like, what the fuck is going There's on? There's like 10 Irish guys in Confederate gray, one guy in a rugby shirt, and then some dude dressed in like Fred Perry. Like, sorry, I'm late. I, mi- I missed the uniform. Uh, like, I miss I missed the uniform issuance. I don't have, you know, the like a uh, the matching T-shirt that says like John O'Stag, where on the back of it, it says the nonce. Eventually, O'Neill managed to secure boats and ferried his men across the river Nakanda, occupied Fort Erie, and raised the flag of the Irish Republic. Others advanced forward and began cutting telegraph lines, while O'Neill settled in to secure their supply lines for ammo, food, and reinforcements. These stayed open for about 13 hours, and he managed to amass over a thousand men and thousands upon thousands of rounds of ammunition on the Canadian side of the border. Around now, the U.S. decided shit was getting a little bit too real for them to keep allowing it to go on. So they dispatched a U.S. Navy gunboat, the USS Michigan, to sail down the river and tell Athenians back on the American side to fuck off and stop crossing the river. And they did. They didn't even bother. They didn't fire a shot. There was no arrest. They was like, go home. And it was like, yeah, all right. They just deployed, you know, like. 19th century Iggy Pop on the banks just like a scrawny emaciated dude that's acting real weird and like I don't like the look of that guy let's go home <laughs> dual wielding heroin needles and covered in his own shit 
<laughs> covered in peanut butter. O'Neill and his army decided to fuck it, and they continued into Canada. But pretty much as soon as he crossed the border, Min once again was really like, I kind of want to go home, and began deserting him. Like the Americans before him during their invasion of Quebec, an episode we will talk about in the future, during the American Revolution, O'Neill believed that Canadians would support his mission because they thought Canadians saw the British the same way they did. They're like, ah, we're going to throw off our colonial yoke or whatever. But not really. Every time they went to a, like a Canadian town or whatever and they told them what to do, it was like, why don't you lads go and fuck off? See, they should have done a pincer movement joining with the Quebecois who hate the Queen as well. Uh, yeah, well, I think a lot of it had to do with Canadians also hated the Irish. <laughs> yeah. Now, we weren't well liked on the global stage at this, day, at this point. By the end of the first day of the invasion, only about 650 of his original force were still sticking by him. The Brits were also acting, knowing that the Fenians had been playing this for a long time, you know, because everybody was openly talking about it. They had garrison troops and supporting Canadian militias already in the area and waiting. On June 2nd, O'Neill's forces camped out near the Limestone Ridge, having not run into any resistance so far. This is when the British force, under the command of Colonel Alfred Booker, about equal size to the Fenians, arrived. And the battle began. The Finians quickly discovered a weakness in their entire plan that, for some reason, nobody had thought about. Yes, they were combat veterans. Yes, they were led by generals who absolutely knew what they were doing. But they had never actually trained together. <laughs> they hadn't done their drilling. The Finian units were a mismatch of different Civil War veterans from across the U.S. and the Confederacy. Many of them had little familiarity with one another. So when confronted by the British and Canadian forces who actually had drilled and trained together, things quickly began to go badly for the Fenians. A few things pulled their asses out of the fire, however. They had a fuckload of ammo, way more than the Canadians and the Brits. Because of this, and the fact that the individual Fenian riflemen was much more hardened than the Canadians and, and, and the Brits. Like these guys just like steeled through the U S civil war. So despite the fact that they were fighting a much better trained and organized force organization, more important in this aspect, like having a couple hundred dudes exchange salvos with them, didn't even make them break a sweat. They're used to battles with <laughs> thousands upon thousands of men also because they were so combat trained that when like, you know, musket balls started hissing by their ears that it didn't slow them down. Uh, whereas like the Brits and the Canadians, when they, you know, got a whiff of the, uh, of the musket fire, they began to panic. They weren't reloading as fast. They were reloading as well. They weren't aiming. Meanwhile, the Fenians could pour three times more fire into the Brits than they received because they're like, it's only like 200 of them. Who cares? Yeah. You, you got to hand it to them. You know, that that's real efficiency. Yeah. Then, of course, one final thing that helped them most of all, good old-fashioned battlefield stupidity. The Canadian militia saw Fenians on horseback and thought they were about to like take a cavalry charge, but they weren't. They were actually just scouts hanging out on the distance. The Fenians didn't have anyone dedicated to fighting on horseback. However, the Canadians saw them, panicked, and began attempting to form themselves into a square, which, for people who are unaware, this is the ye old main anti-cavalry formation for infantry of the day, but they did so without orders. 
And forming yourself into an orderly square is just about as complicated as an infantry maneuver you could do back in the day. So they completely fucked it up because they were panicking. They had no orders. They have a bunch of like Irishmen who don't even seem to be wincing every time they get hit by a fucking musket ball. (laughs) (laughs) So like different wings miscommunicated with one another and soon this square shape turned into more of a clusterfuck, a mess of screaming and lost Canadians. And finally, the Canadians had fucked this shit and they ran from the battlefield. The rest of the army, now outnumbered, had no choice but to keep up with the fleeing militia, running all the way back to the town of Ridgeway, which is where this battle gets its name, the Battle of Ridgeway. With the road wide open to his advance, O'Neill hesitated and decided that his army was going to turn around and head back towards Fort Erie. On their way there, they ran into another British force who was outnumbered two to one. And after shooting at each other for a couple minutes, the British decided we didn't want any of the smoke. And uh, they left behind a couple soldiers who were then captured by the Fenians. (laughs) Yeah, you guys hang around. Just make sure nothing weird happens. If you get captured, it's fine. They're Irish. They're not going to cut you up and cannibalize you and boil you with like corned beef and cabbage i am actually kind of impressed with how chill they were towards their pow's you know, normally yeah, in the grand I'm... scheme of history resistance fighters and revolutionaries or whatever you want to call them are not the nicest to captured prisoners i i would posit maybe it's because there's so much irish cultural memory particularly at this time of like the penal colonies like being irish people being sent to like van diemen's land which is now tasmania or, you know, being sent to the Caribbean and stuff like that. So they're like, uh, maybe we'll be nice to the prisoners. I also think that they knew that they're doing with doing this with the full allowance of the United States. And if they began like lining up British POWs against the wall and, and firing, squatting them, like the US would be like, yo, what the fuck? Yeah. Also, like tactically, I think it's a it would be a bad gambit if you like you capture your first POWs and you're going up against, you know, the British at this time, you know, at the almost peak of colonialism and like saying like, oh yeah, we just shot a couple of your citizens. What are you going to do about it? You don't, you don't really want to give them more of an excuse to kill Irish people in Ireland. Yeah, they don't need one. They're already doing it. You don't need to make it any worse. Yeah, they're doing a pretty good job of it at this time. You know, it's 1866. Yeah, though O'Neill kind of knew at this point his plan was completely boned. The river was closed off. He couldn't get reinforcements. And with the invasion started, the British were quickly pulling most of their military strength in Canada towards his direction. Um, And he would be vastly outnumbered. O'Neill knew he'd have to get back to the U.S. and live to fight another day. So he let his prisoners go, rightly assuming the U.S. authorities probably would be pretty upset if he transported British POWs across international lines and ordered his men to recross the Niagara River. However, that was easier said than done. There weren't enough boats anymore, so men slapped together rafts, stole local boats, and in some cases just jumped and swam for it to get back to the U.S. Waiting for them on the other side were units from the U.S. Army, who pleasantly greeted the Fenians and calmly asked for them to please leave your weapons on the ground and go home. Mm. O'Neill's... You no, know, at, at, at least they were polite about it. Yeah, they, they weren't going to arrest anybody for it. O'Neill's mission ended with two of his men dying, another eight being wounded, while the Brits and Canadians lost nine killed in action. However, they did lose 22 more men from random shit along the way, including one man accidentally shooting himself and another <laughs> another dropping dead from heat stroke. And of course, a wave of cholera. Yeah, kind of hard to fight against cholera. 
Yeah, you can't shoot it. You just have to have clean water, which nobody had figured out yet. That wouldn't be invented until 1948. <laughs> hey, one, once again, <laughs> nobody's taking solid shits. Yeah, everybody here is just a pant load of diarrhea. Ugh, I'm thinking like unwaked wool pants full of shit in like the summer heat. Not great. This is why nobody smelled good until like 1959. Yeah, Actually, I stand by that statement. It's not even a full joke. Maybe we'll find out that the reason Josephine was so attracted to uh, Napoleon was because, you know, he actually didn't smell like shit. After reading his memoirs, I'm not so sure about that. (laughs) Now, this, it turned out, to be the high watermark of the Fenian plans for Canada because it would all go rapidly downhill from here. Another Fenian group invaded Saint-Armand-Quebec, and uh, they were charged down by a force of cavalry, which caused them to retreat. Another crossover from Vermont at the end of June fired a volley at some Canadians, missed, and then ran back over the border. Though Some Quebecois soldiers like, oh my god, uh, what are these paddies doing in Canada? <laughs> Though the Fenians weren't done yet, and they kept planning new invasions into 1870. This led to the Battle of Trout River in May of 1870. Uh, this one was also led by O'Neill, but his forces badly outnumbered. And after exchanging a few rounds with the Canadians and the Brits, they retreated back to the U.S., where this time O'Neill was arrested, sentenced to two years in prison, and then his sentence was immediately uh, pardoned by President Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> However, my personal favorite is the last and dumbest invasion, which occurred a year later. O'Neill asked the Fenian Governing Council to greenlight his new invasion of Canada, this time out of the Dakota Territory, but they refused. They're like, no, nah, we're, we're kind of done doing that now. It hasn't really worked out. So he resigned and kind of turned into an Irish freebooter doing it on his own. He, he allied. He set up, he set up a GoFundMe. <laughs> it's, it's a Patreon with the $100 limit of Invade Canada. New Patreon goal, by the way. Yeah, if if we reach, I don't know what, like fifty grand a month, we'll uh, invade Canada. I feel like the IRS would have a problem with that. I'm not entirely sure. That's for my accountant to figure out. I think. Yeah. <laughs> now he allied with a French native leader named Louis Riel, who promised to help him stick it to the Canadians and the Brits. The kind of sort of Fenian raid and the, with their French native allies charged forward, seizing two buildings without resistance. Then Riel turned on him, tried to turn him over to the Brits, uh, and uh, but he failed because that's when O'Neill looked out his window and was very confused when he saw a couple U.S. soldiers simply calmly walking up to the buildings that he had captured. Because it turned out he was still two miles inside of the United States. <laughs> he had accidentally invaded the Dakotas from the Dakotas. Uh. He was again arrested without incident. People should learn to read maps. The U.S. decided not to charge him for accidentally invading the United States from the United States. I assume because his embarrassment was punishment enough. Now, despite the Battle of Ridgeway, as it came to be known, being the first Irish battlefield victory over the Brits in a hundred years, and honestly, also probably the last one period, um, nothing that favored the Irish came from these invasions. In fact, the opposite happened because it became a touchstone of early Canadian nationalism. 
Um, and it was actually one of the reasons why Canada gained self-governance. Of course, this also led to a massive crackdown against Irish people in Ireland. Oh, never, never works out well for us. See, Irish people were not good at invading. We're being good. We're good at being invaded. I'll say that, but not invading. Oh, that sounds familiar, unfortunately. <laughs> now, O'Neill gave up the armed struggle against the Brits or Canada, which, whichever. I don't think he could tell the difference anymore. Though he didn't stop being very, very weird. He resisted calls for Irish Americans to assimilate into the United States and said called for a new Ireland to be created in the American Great Plains, saying, quote, we could build up a young Ireland on the virgin prairies of Nebraska and there rear a monument more lasting than the granite or the marble to the Irish race in America. You want to guess? Irish people aren't a race. You want, you want to well, guess how successful he was at this? Uh, really good. I, 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 everything I know about the Great Plains, you know, very fertile land that has lasted up until now. I mean, he was successful in moving, getting, uh, convincing people to move out there. Thousands of Irish moved to Nebraska following his lead. This, is, of course, is ironic now that he was stealing indigenous people's lands, but he didn't care too much about that because he was also an in- intensely racist prick to the point that the Irish Republican Brotherhood turned on him. Yeah, I mean, like, I think spending time in the Confederate Army would do that to someone. Oh, he wasn't in the Confederate Army, though he was friends with a lot of people who were. So, you know, uh, do with that yeah. what information yeah. what you will. Yeah, the company you keep says a lot about you. Now, O'Mahony fell from his prominent position within the Brotherhood by continuing to hate black and native people long after the U.S. Civil War, with a former member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood saying of O'Mahony and specifically the entire Fenian branch in New York that they were a, quote, bloated carcass of gaseous Manhattanism. Hey, bar, absolute solid gold bar. He's got away with words. Yeah. And he died penniless, and eventually his body was transferred to Dublin, where I believe there is currently a statue of him. I mean, look, you know, tale as old as time for Irish people once they move, you die penniless, <laughs> and your body gets sent back home. Now, the man with the most normal ending of all of this is T.W. Sweeney, the man who planned the entire thing as the Fenian Secretary of War. After, So, like, remember, he had leave from the army to commit an invasion of Canada. Now, he was released from jail without charge for invading Canada, was immediately reinstated into the U.S. Army, retired as a general, and lived on his pension in Long Island until he died. The other option for an Irish person in America. (laughs) I just think it's great. They're like, oh, so how was your summer vacation or leave or whatever? Like, good. Visited Canada. Just doesn't doesn't elaborate. Imagine how racist he was against Italians in Long Island. Oh my god, yeah. That and not only is he just vehemently racist against Italians, but is the only guy in the block who reserves a certain kind of special hatred for Canadians that everyone is concerned about. And everyone's really confused about it and doesn't really understand why. Yeah, because he doesn't talk about his stag do in Ontario uh, very much. <laughs> and, and that, Tom... Is the Fenian raids into Canada? How how do you feel about uh, your your comrades, the Irish Americans? You know, there's a saying that like I don't just support women's rights; I support women's wrongs, and I feel the same way about Irish people. <laughs> I just had water come out of my nose. <laughs> I I have to say, I didn't know a lot about this going in, other than the fact that it happened. Like, I wasn't aware of the you know, the minute details and how 
they accidentally invaded Dakota, uh, one of the Dakotas, which to be completely honest with, I'm fine with. Um, I don't actually believe that North Dakota exists. I don't recognize its sovereignty. Um, we we should only respect larger Dakota. Yeah, I, I respect greater Dakota, which somehow encompasses everything west of Ohio. Um, I'm becoming a Dakota revanchist. It's fine. (laughs) Like, it's so funny because at this time, just like, there is so many just insane Irish people in the US. Like, I'm working on an episode about Commandant John Barry, who is the father of the US Navy. And just like all of the insane people who were just floating around at the time. Also, if you're listening and you happen to be Irish American and live in the plain states, now you know how your parents got there. Uh, they're they're <laughs> attempting they're attempting to create like you know Nebraska and Ireland, which is <laughs> they're trying to create an ethno state in the middle of America. Not the just first group populated. of people to do that, and not the last. <laughs> populated exclusively with people who have fucking massive heads. <laughs> Listen here, lads. What if we did? What if we recreated Ireland but with corn? <laughs> hey, Charles Trevelyan took all errors, so I can recommend a song about that, Tom. We do a thing on the show here called Questions from the Legion. Um, if you'd like to ask us a question, the Legion donate to the show. You can ask us on Patreon. You can ask us on our Discord, which you'll also have access to if you support the show. Or you could, I don't know, load it into an ear of corn and fire it towards London and Tom will answer it. See, like uh, Ireland's uh, relationship with corn, if we had had corn, imagine... Uh, we had, you know, cross-cultural exchange with Central America, and we just had Irish tacos. Like, corn tortillas, Irish tacos. The Irish long to eat corn the long way. Now, uh, today, <laughs> today's... Sucking on it like a lollipop, just like, r- like dragging my teeth along the oh, length of the corn ugh. to just, like, s- scrape them into my mouth. Ugh. Today's question is... What is a TV show that would have been awesome if it wasn't canceled? Ooh, um, uh, Mindhunter in uh, is that comes first to mind. Like I don't really care about serial killer stuff or. Yeah, but it was so well crime. done. I mean, it's also because it was so done by good. David Lynch. Yeah. Um. Other than that, I can't think of like many shows that got canceled. Um. Well, not necessarily canceled, but uh, unfinished is a uh, Hunter Hunter. Uh, that's oh, another that'll one. That'll never be finished. Yeah. Or Berserk. No, yeah. No. Well, literally, that will never be finished. Now. No, no, they're continuing work on it. Um, like his assistants yeah, are going to do it. Which I like, know, but no, Mura Mura's dead. Look, it it, it died to me at at the end of like what chapter two hundred seventy three. So. I think, look, the easy answer here is Firefly. Um, I hate that show so much. You're fired. You're fired from this fucking podcast. And I don't know how, but I'm going to find a way to deport you somewhere awful. Not even Ireland. You're going to go to fucking, like, I don't know, Somalia. I'm sorry. If I could wipe one person's cultural impact off the face of the planet, it would be Joss Whedon. Look, I'm not here to be a Joss Whedon defender. And in fact, another member of his crew, uh, the bald one, whose first name is escaping me at the moment, once started an argument on Twitter with me. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> despite all of that, I still love the show. But that's the easy answer. The hard one, I think, is a show called Terriers. Um, okay. It was, I believe, on FX years and years ago. 
it oh, best shows come from fx yeah they either put out the best shows that last forever or really good shows that immediately get canceled or really shitty shows that somehow continue forever um but terriers is a really cool show i think it went for one one whopping season and um it, it was funny it was deep it was well written so of course it had to die uh yeah in reality, the real answer for this show is Deadliest Warrior. No, that should have that should have never left the drawing board. That show is fucking terrible. <laughs> oh, it, it rules though. Like it, it's uh, definitely an era of I, I believe it was the History Channel or Discovery Channel. They went through very similar eras. Oh no, Deadliest Warrior was like Bravo. Wasn't oh it? fuck no, it was Spike TV. Yeah, it was even better. It, it, it was the show. F- it was the network for men, which meant it yeah. had the worst shows ever on it. Um, yeah, it was real bad. Bring back Deadliest Warrior. Look, bring it back, but like give it to the Sci-Fi Network. I w- I want to see like you know ISIS versus I don't know um, these guys. You know the guys who invaded Canada. Who's gonna win? Look, they're going to ally and establish a caliphate in Dublin. Everyone's going to be really confused. Anyway. <laughs> the extended caliphate of Calvin. That is a podcast. Tom, plug your show. Uh, listen to Beneath the Skin, the show about the history of everything told through the history of tattooing. At the time of recording, we have just released an episode about H.R. Giger. Um, we had a expert in Giger, uh, Miroslava Hartmann, who is also, you know, an art curator and a writer on to talk about uh, the one and only Hans-Rudy Giger. Um, His name is not Geiger. The reason people think it's Geiger is because it was mispronounced at the 1980 Oscars. Famously, the creator of the alien from Aliens or the Xenomorph, if you're going to be a nerd about it. Um, (laughs) An incredible artist, was really influential on tattooing. But like, it's just a super interesting guy. And we had a really cool conversation with Miroslava about his life and his influence. Thank you very much. This is the only show that I host. Uh, but if you like what we do here, consider supporting us on Patreon. You get episodes like this early. You get access to our Discord. You get five plus years of bonus content. You get eBooks. You get audiobooks. You get stickers and some other things I am probably forgetting. Um, or, and leave us a review on wherever it is you listen to podcasts. It helps us immensely. And until next time, invade Canada. They know what they did.